often wonder, are any of the songs of our generation going to be sung two, three, four, five hundred years from now, like some of the hymns that we sing are, are still being sung today? And most of the time, if you're just being really transparent and honest with yourself, absolutely not. Like... Most modern music, total train wreck. There's no way that past, you know, the next four or five years, anybody's ever going to want to sing those songs. I I suspect we're going to have some folks, if the Lord tarries three, four, five hundred years from now, singing Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It sounds like a song written in maybe like the 16, 1700s. It was written three years ago. What? Right. Thank you. From the mouths of I know every time I go back and I notice that I'm like, there's no way that this song is legit. Only like three years old, um, because it just has that feel, that richness, that depth of an older song. And it's just great. And again, Sylvania does it better than the guys on the radio do. So thank you guys so much for for making that happen. So Psalm 44 this morning, as we continue our series together, beginning in verse one for the choir director a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days and the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them and you afflicted the peoples. And then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land. And their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence For you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long. And we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And you do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You, have, you give us as sheep to be eaten. And you have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply. And you have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We have considered we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its power to transform our lives. Father, thank you that it gives to us a special revelation of who you are and what you are like. 
and how we can interact with you as those made in your image, redeemed by your son's blood. Father, this morning, cause our hearts and our minds to be made aware of your glory and your greatness, the majesty of the son, the purity of his gospel, the abiding presence of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning, Jesus, our victory in all circumstances. So we have again this morning, if you were with us last week, another masculine of the sons of Korah. And um, what we see at the beginning of this particular song is is God's victories, both past and present. The, the beginning of this psalm is very upbeat. It, it's talking about the things that God has done. And it starts with God has done great things in the past. Notice at the beginning, it says, God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. So it's starting out saying, hey, there's been a testimony in our lives from the lives of people who've walked with you before us of your greatness and the good things that you have done for your people in the past. We didn't see it. We didn't experience it, but we've heard about it. We've heard about these great things that you have done. Now, I want to go ahead and just touch on a slight difficulty in trying to figure out when all this went down, because we know that this is a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now, who are the sons of Korah and do they represent the group of people that were sons of the of the of the the false worshiping Korah group from the days of Moses? Is it multi generations later? There's a lot of speculation out there about what this means. It makes it even more difficult when you have a psalm like this one, because they seem to be describing here their fathers telling them about entrance into the promised land. Which is a really, by the way, if you you don't know, it's a really long time after the Korah event with Moses. Because remember, Moses didn't get to go. And then once they finally got into the promised land, it took a while to get everybody else out. Like there's a whole books written about how that went down. And so this and then this group seems to be a good generation or more after those guys cleansed out the promised land and took it for themselves. And so the like the dating of this and trying to figure out like where this falls in Israel's history, really hard to do. But what we know that they're talking about, the the event that they're referencing Is God driving the nations out before the people of Israel when they take the promised land? That's what he's talking about. He says, and whoever they are, they say, we didn't get to do that. Like we didn't like we're living in the blessing of that because that's where we are right now. We've just heard the stories about what you did to give this space to your people like you promised that you would. So God has done great things before. And then apparently this group of people, whoever is helping to construct this psalm, they currently have adversaries that they have waged war against while they were in the land of promise. And God has given them victories. And they are certain that they will continue to push their enemies away. God's continuing to do great things for them now. And then it concludes this kind of first section 
in verse 8, in God we have boasted all day long. And we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. So they're boasting in the Lord. God, you've done great things in the past. God, you're doing great things in the present. You are a great and good God and worthy to be praised. Now, let's just pause for a second. There's a lot of times in our lives where God feels distant. And when we kind of step back and we get a little introspective and we get a little evaluative, we come to realize, well, God feels distant because of my sin. I've done something I'm not supposed to do. I'm in violation of the way God would have me order my life. I'm, I'm, I'm choosing something other than the glory of the Lord. And therefore, there's a relational distance likely caused by me. Or sometimes God feels distant. And we take a look around and we realize, well, I haven't really done anything to violate the covenant reality of God's love. I'm walking with the Lord. But there are those out here who are making my life very miserable. And and the scripture does indicate that that can and will happen to those who are trying to walk righteously with the Lord. And and I'm receiving this suffering, this current suffering uh, and, and this despair of soul because of what's happening outside of my control. Circumstances that I cannot contain myself These things are happening to me and the effects of them happening to me are starting to drive me to a place where I'm not having the faith mindedness that I should have. And instead, I'm starting to feel fear and anxiety and despair. And as such, God feels distant, not so much because I've done anything wrong, but because of all the wrong that's happening to me. And I'm curious why God continues to allow wicked people to prevail in my life. And when you have these distance Psalms and they happen all throughout all the books of the Psalms, usually those are the two main reasons why somebody expresses I'm feeling distant from the Lord. I'm either in sin or some tragic thing is happening to me that I can't control. And I'm wondering why God would do that. This is a very unique psalm. There's a couple of others that do this, but this is one of the few where this happens. The psalmist starts out and says, hey, God's great. God's done a lot of great stuff in the past. And not only has God done great stuff in the past, God's doing great stuff now. Praise God. Let's boast in his name. This is amazing. Our God is amazing. Our situation in God is amazing. And then the transition. When God seems distant, even in the good times. Because notice what happens in verse 9. All that God, you're great. What you did in the past is great. What you're doing now is great. Praise your name. We're going to boast in you. You're amazing God. Yet you, God, have rejected us. And brought us to dishonor. Where did that come from? I mean, that's just like a crazy curveball right in the middle of all this. Like, you don't expect that. Like, this is one of those kind of catch you by surprise moments in the psalm. God, you were great to our fathers. God, you've been great to us. God, your name's great to be praised. Man, it's great to be the people of God. But you've rejected us anyway. In fact, the psalmist gets incredibly accusatory toward the Lord. Um, I mentioned, you know, last time when we opened our study back up in the Psalms, how much I love the Psalms. And one of the reasons why I love the Psalms, the Psalms gave me freedom privately. I don't I don't 
pray this way publicly. But it gave me freedom privately to pray very aggressive prayers to God. Because there are ways that I have felt about God that aren't savory good ways to feel about God. I've been angry with God. I've been frustrated with God. I've been sideways with the Lord. I've been disappointed in what appears to be my relationship with the Lord. And sometimes I want to put that on God instead of me. Like, and, and as a younger man, I always was like, I can't feel that way about God. I can't say that. Like, you can't wag your finger at God. That's not okay. Like, I got confused with Greco-Roman mythology. I was like, you know, he might strike me down with a thunderbolt or something. You know, by the way, that's Thor, not Jehovah. Just want to throw that out there. Um, and if Thor is anything like the movies, he's not worth following anyway. Just want to also throw that out there. I mean, the world's about to end and he decides to like pig out and play Fortnite. No, that's not what heroes do. You know, just want to throw that out. And so I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't feel this way about God. And then I start studying the Psalms very closely. And I realize that some of the greatest people who've ever walked with God in their worst moments where they feel like they're being rejected and they feel like they're being dishonored and they don't understand why God is allowing these things to happen in their life, they are more than happy and free to throw their finger at God and say, how dare you, God, be this way? Like they're they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing down for us songs and prayers that it's totally okay to say that to God. And then I had a professor say a long, long time ago, I, I went to him and I said, hey, I'm starting to realize this is really transforming my personal prayer life. And he goes, absolutely. He said, here's the deal. Why would you keep that stuff to yourself? God's all knowing and sovereign. He already knows you feel that way. You might as well just go ahead and tell him. It's not like you're keeping it secret from an all knowing God. I was like, wow, that's profound. Also very freeing. And so the psalmist here kind of puts God on notice. The psalmist here kind of really is like, okay, hey, look, you rejected us. You dishonored us. You didn't go out with our armies. You caused us to be turned back by adversaries. You caused us to hate us, to to take spoil from themselves. Uh, you, You gave us like sheep to be eaten. You scattered us among the nation. And then this one, wow, this one just hit really hard. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited from their sell. Wow. This is how the psalmist feels. There's a feeling of rejection by God, even in the midst of the best circumstances, even in the, 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 the good times. They're being defeated by their enemies. They're being de- de- belittled by those who stand against them and the Lord. There's a dishonor here of both God and God's people among the pagans. And the psalmist is confused. God, everything's going right. You've been blessing us. And we haven't been taking your blessing for granted. We have been giving you glory for your blessings. And yet, in the middle of you doing good to us, and us giving you full honor and glory for being a good God to us, you opt in this moment... To hand us over to those who hate us. 
and to cause us to live in defeat and in insult in spite of the fact that the people who love you are showing clearly that they love you. What what gives? What's the deal? It doesn't feel like you're being a very good God right now. It doesn't feel like you're being holy. It doesn't feel like you're being just. If if you were being holy and if you were being good and if you were being just, you're doing all the good God stuff and we're doing all the good God people stuff. Like everybody's on the same page. You're a great God and we love you for it and we honor you for it and we're delighted to be in it. We're not taking any credit for it and we're walking with you and we're doing all the covenant stuff. Why have you rejected us? Why are our enemies defeating us? I thought you said at the end of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, when you keep the covenant, this won't ever happen to us. And we're keeping the covenant and yet here we are being defeated by our enemies. What's going on, God? Like this is how he's praying. This is how he's praying. And by the way, this is a song. It's for the choir director. This is what they've got playing on pop radio, whatever century this is, in the nation of Israel. Like, you're not going to catch a song like that on Christian radio, you know. God, you're great. God, we love you. But yet it seems like you hate us. Like, you're not, it's not, it's not going to make it. Like, that's not going to make the cut. Like, Laura's story is not going to write that song. Like, it's not going to happen. And so you've got this happening here. So what do, you, what do you do with that? Notice what he says. The psalmist here says. After being made a byword, after being dishonored, after being humiliated, after being reviled. Notice in verse 17, it says, all of this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you. God, in spite of the fact that it seems like you are being unnecessarily harsh with your people, even though it seems like you're relationally distant, even though it seems like there's some sort of oddity happening in the covenant promises that you've made, we are still going to remain faithful. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart. Now, notice this is a collective. This is a beautiful thing. Our heart has not turned back. And our steps have not deviated from your way. Now, not the main point of the sermon this morning, but I would be amiss if I did not express this adamantly this morning. So I'm going to step off the main trail. We're going to go to a side Side trail. I want verse 18. I want you to write it down. I want you to mark it. Whatever you do. To put and file verses in your mind. I want you to chew on it this week. Put on an index card. Whatever you've got to do to mull over this. Notice. How the psalmist interacts. With the Lord in this case. Our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your 
way. Friend, whether you like it or not, it was true in the Old Testament. It is most certainly true in the New Testament. There is a collective, unified heart of God's people. We are in community, common unity. And Paul makes this really clear in the New Testament. That whatever happens among the weakest of the members impacts drastically those who are the strongest and healthiest of the members. When he's talking about the body and if one part of the body is hurting or if one part of the body is dishonorable, then the whole body is hurting and the whole body starts to have dishonor. We cannot embrace the false notion of American individualism in the life of the community of the church. It's our heart. And so that's why we laugh with those who laugh and we weep with those who weep. And that's why the New Testament takes so seriously the calling each other into account when it comes to our sin. Because your sin is not just your sin. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we have these magnificent stories of even just a handful of people rebelling against God and the entire nation facing the consequences of the sin of a few people. You say, well, that was the way it was back then. We've got a new covenant now, right? We've got a new and better covenant. And we're even more closely knit together than they ever were as a nation of Israel. Because we are not bound by the law of Moses and by the ritual of the tabernacle and the ritual of the temple and the connection of the priesthood. We are bound together by the very precious blood of Jesus Christ himself. And so when your family is falling apart, our family is falling apart. When you're suffering Through that negative relationship, whatever it may be, we're suffering through that negative relationship, whatever it may be. When you are anxious and fretful and fearful over whatever that thing is that has come into your life, we are anxious and fretful and fearful because that thing has come into our lives. Our heart needs not to turn away from the Lord. Our steps do not need to deviate from the Lord's path. There's a story told and it and it demonstrates this very well, I think. There was a father who was taking his son hunting for the first time. And where they lived, there was an early snow when they went to hunt the first time. And so they were walking through the snow, headed to the place where they were going to set up for their hunt. And the dad was moving rather quickly. His son was following behind him. And and the dad noticed, he kind of just looked back to see how things were going. And he noticed that his son was doing everything he could to try to step in the same track steps that his dad was in, but his dad's legs were so much longer than his that it was very difficult for him to accomplish this task. And the dad could have reprimanded him and said, look, just walk normally. Because the kid kept stumbling and he kept tripping, trying to get those big steps in the snow. But instead of reprimanding him, dad recognizing, hey, we're in this together. We're making this journey together. We're, we're, what happens with me here happens with you here. He shortened up his stride. So it was easier for his son to walk in his footsteps. 
Because they were unified. They were together. This was an endeavor that we were both doing. And some are more mature and some are less mature and some are further along in the journey and some are not quite as far in the journey. Yet we are all walking the journey together. And so your sin and your struggles and your problems are not your sin and your struggles and your problems. They're our sin and our struggle and our problems. And I think that this, again, sidetrack away, not the main point of the sermon, but I think that we need to, to, to mull over this notion of our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your way because we are the body of Christ Made up of many members, but one body unified together under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot, dear Christian friend, view your life independent of the rest of the gospel community. You just can't. Because whatever's hurting you, if not properly resolved, will in time hurt the whole gospel community. It just will. And so there's this struggle that the psalmist has. Notice what he says. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? Of course he would. He's all knowing God. He knows the very secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so the psalmist just leaves the tension there and moves for a call to God's redemptive presence. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? Oh, Lord. Now, I just want to pause here. Does Jehovah ever sleep? Thank you. I was going to say this is easy pop quiz. Easiest quiz you've ever taken your whole life. Does Jehovah sleep? No. It's very clear. What's called to mind is that beautiful interaction between Elijah and the priest of Baal. Since he knows Baal's not real, maybe he's gone away on a far trip. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you should make a little extra noise and rouse him and wake him up. Like, I love that interaction because it gives me at least a little bit of personal freedom to be snarky from time to time. Because Elijah was just messing with these dudes, you know. Like, he was just giving them a really hard time. He's like, maybe you're, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe not making enough noise. You need to help wake him up. Of course, Jehovah's never never sleeps. Scripture says this actually in places. Never sleeps, never slumbers. Yet the psalmist who knows this is asking him to wake up. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? Awake. Don't reject us forever. This is how the psalmist feels. God, I don't understand. Why this is happening to me right now. And I know that there are those in our generation who say, well, just quit belly aching. No, there's a real emotional reality from time to time in our spiritual walk where we know everything is as it should be. God's a good God. God's a great God. God's a covenant making, covenant keeping God. And I am walking rightly with the Lord. I'm honoring his name. I'm not taking the glory for myself. I'm deflecting all glory to Christ. And yet in the middle of all of that, God brings something into my life that is 
overwhelming and disproportionate to the walk that I'm having with him right now. And is so in a negative sense. And it makes you throw your hands up and go, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening right now? And nobody likes to hear it in our in our culture. But friends, there are real times, real times. Where you just look at the circumstances of your life and you go, God, why is this happening to me? The book of Job, by the way, it's about that. It starts out, there's no one on earth as righteous as Job. That's how it starts. And then his life becomes this massive train wreck. And God allows all of that stuff to happen to him. Like, by the way, if you ever read Job any other way, then God allows all that stuff to happen to him. You've read the book incorrectly. Job's just trucking along, loving God. Everything's great. He's a righteous man. He loves the Lord. He gives praise to God. And his whole family dies. All his stuff gets taken from him. And he gets sick all at the same time. And he sits down in this big garbage pile. And he looks up at heaven and he goes, Why are you doing this to me, God? This is what the psalmist is talking about. There are times in our spiritual journey where we do not understand the old heads, the old guys. This is what they would call it. They they, they would call it the frowning providence of God. Where for reasons that we cannot understand or explain, God's providence at least seems to us in human terms to be a negative frowning providence. And we just kind of look around and we go, I don't understand why this is going on. So what should the response be? Well, notice they want God to arouse. They want God to awake. They ask the question. Why do you hide your face? Now, we need to unpack this just really briefly. In in the Hebrew mindset, this notion of the face is a notion of relational presence. And it's a carryover into almost all cultures, even our culture, even if we're not aware of the carryover that has happened. And if you want to run, if you're brave enough to run social experiments, I don't necessarily encourage this, but if you're brave enough to run social experiments, you can find out really quickly the association with a face being present or a face being hidden and relational closeness in our culture just by going and getting too close to somebody else's face. If you're a wife or a husband and you get really close to your spouse's face, guess what? They don't care. They're totally fine with that because you have a relational closeness and intimacy. Some of you have done it with your own children. Look me in my face. They know what's up. They understand that this conversation is about to be a very different kind of conversation. When you are really trying to help somebody understand something, you're really trying to portray a feeling or an emotion or whatever, your willingness to allow a person close to your face means one of two things. Usually in most cultures, it was true in Hebrew culture. Either I have a very good, close, intimate relationship with this person and I don't mind that they've invaded this space or we're about to have a really serious, severe conflict issue. 
Because you don't need to be in this space right now. And you are. That's a carryover. That's Middle Eastern ancient Hebrew culture. And when it talks about the face. That's in the, that's in the benediction of numbers. Calls his face to shine upon you. The blessing of the face. I want God right here. I want to see him in his face. I want to be able to look. That's what, what did Moses ask for? To know that he had this great relationship. God, I want to see your face. You can't see my face. If you see my face, you'll die. And then what's the promise to the new covenant believer? God will look us in our face. Uh-huh, and wipe every tear from our eye. And mark his name where? On our forehead. In our, on our very face itself will have the name of God. This is a beautiful cultural thing about blessing and closeness and intimacy. And notice what the psalmist asks. He says, why do you hide your face? This relational closeness seems to be gone. And then carrying over from Psalms Psalms 42 and 43 that we saw together last time, the, the sons of Korah used this same language of despair. For our soul has sunk down into the dust. That's the language of death. Remember, for dust you are and dust you shall return. And our body cleaves to the earth. And so what is the request at the end of all of this? How does this all come together at the end? There's a threefold call from those who have experienced this. First, rise up. Either way you slice it, whether that's rise up from your slumber or you know, gird yourself up for action. This has embedded underneath it the notion of resurrection language. It's there. It's types and shadows because it's the old covenant, but it's there. Rise up, be our help, and then notice what the psalmist does. God, I need for you to rise up. I need for you to be our help because we can't raise ourselves up and we can't be our own help. You have to be the one to take action. So there's an acknowledgement of God's sovereign power and salvation and deliverance, even in the midst of the best circumstances, because the psalmist is aware that all, hear me, friend, all circumstances ultimately and finally come to us from the hand of God. You're trucking along, you're feeling good, you've been watching what you eat, you've been doing a little exercise, you're super excited about this next doctor's visit because it's going to be the first time in a long time. They're like, hey, you've been doing really great. They run your blood work and they come back and they say, you got to have surgery next week because you got some cancer that you didn't know about and it just showed up on the thing and I'm really sorry, you're going to be sick for a long time. Nobody wants to hear that. Do you know what else nobody wants to hear? Even believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately and finally, that has come to you at the hand of God. So, Philip, you can't do God like that. Why can't I do God like that? Ultimately and finally, all things that do or don't happen to us, do or don't happen to us because of the sovereign will of God. 
And the psalmist recognized at the end of this, hey, everything's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And yet, God, your providence is frowning on us. And God, we don't understand. We don't know. We can't comprehend. We are small, finite human beings. You are great, infinite, holy, eternal God. We need for you to rise up. We need for you to be our help. God, you must act or we will remain the way that we are because we ultimately have no control over our circumstances. You are the God who's in control of everything. So that's the first two parts of this call is they're acknowledging God's sovereign will and power in all things. And if you're going to help us, God, you have to help. There's no way we're helping ourselves out of this. But then the third thing is a magnificent acknowledgement on the part of the psalmist. The third part, God, we need you to rise up. God, we need you to be our help. And we need you to redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Now, what does that entail? What does that imply? And this is really, really hard for us to come to terms with. Really, really hard for us to come to terms with. But the psalmist is acknowledging something that we all need to keep on the forefront of our minds. God, no matter how well I think I'm walking in your covenant. No matter how well I think I'm giving glory and honor to your name. No matter how well I think I am doing in displaying your image properly to a lost and broken world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until the day of glory. I am and will evermore be until that great resurrection transformation. Flawed and broken human being. Whose very breath of life is marred on some level by my fall in Adam and my rebellion against you. And no matter what state or condition I think I'm in and how well I think I'm doing, I always and forevermore am in need of your redemptive work in my life. I have not yet been made glorious as Christ is glorious. Therefore, I need your redemptive work to be ever present in my soul. So even though the psalmist starts out saying, hey, we're doing everything right. He ends it with the acknowledgement of I'm not there yet. And I need your grace. I need you to redeem me and notice the language that he uses. I need you to redeem me for what reason? Because I'm a good guy, because I've been doing the right stuff, because I feel like I've been keeping your covenant, because I'm one of your people, because I'm a son of Abraham. No, no, no. Father, I need you to redeem me for the sake of your loving kindness. That loving kindness is the Hebrew word for that we usually get for mercy. For the sake of your mercy, redeem me. That's powerful. I don't want you to save me for my own salvation's sake. 
I don't want you to save me because I want to be freed from the potential judgments of hell. I don't want you to save me so I can receive the benefits of heaven. I don't want you to save me so that these good circumstances I have can continue to be maintained and these bad ones won't come anymore. I want you to save me. I want you to redeem me. I want you to deliver me because you are a merciful God and you display your mercy in the greatest way when you redeem men from their broken, sinful condition. And I want the world to be able to see my life as a reflection of your glory, a display of your mercy, because I can't save myself, but you can save me. And so by the time the psalmist gets to the end of this, he doesn't understand why God has brought all these horrible circumstances into his life. He doesn't understand why it seems that God has rejected him and rebelled against him and moved away from him. He doesn't understand why God has a frowning providence on his existence. But he concludes with the notion of God, you are the only one who can rise up. You are the only one who can help and you are the only one who can save. And you're the only one worthy of the honor and glory and majesty of being the God who can do these things. And so how do we tie all that to Jesus? in the last couple of seconds that we have together. Christ Jesus is our resurrection. He is the one who has risen up. Christ Jesus is our help. He is the only one who can give us the countenance of the face, if you will. That relational closeness where the the face of God is now unhidden but clearly seen. And Christ Jesus is truly the only one who can redeem us, who can set us free from our sins. Why? Because he is truly the mercy seat sacrifice. He is the physical manifestation of the mercy of God. And friends, hear me this morning. No matter what you're going through. If it's the best of times or if it's the worst of times, we won't finish the sentence. It's way too long. But if it's the best of times... Or if it's the worst of times. If you feel a relational disconnection from God. Know this. God in Christ has not moved. He's not moved. God is ever where he always has been. Christ is there seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you as one of his children. And whether you understand the trying and difficulty of the circumstances that you find yourself in or not, know with full assurance that if you are a child of God in Christ, he dwells in you and you dwell in him. And no matter how relationally distant he feels, you are still seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because he has risen up and he has come as help and he has redeemed you for the sake of the mercy of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that in the most trying of circumstances, those that we do not comprehend or understand, Christ Jesus is our help. He is our mercy. And Father, you have placed us in his hand. 
We are in your hand. His hand and your hand are the same. And nothing can separate us from the love that you have for us that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.